topic. Dancing in the rain. What is the topic about? Obviously over here, when I talk about rain, I'm referring to rainy days, as we say. Always put away for a rainy day. And uh, unfortunately, we're in a uh, situation, temporarily, where it's been raining. So uh, the economy, economy bleeds into usually domestic issues and uh, health issues and stress and uh, so when we talk about uh, dancing in the rain we're talking about dancing in the rain on all levels it's really it's really a rainy how are you? it's really a rainy time for a lot of people unfortunately so the question here and let's read it straight off from what you got the email so maybe your life isn't presently roses in the spring maybe your marriage isn't presently sunshine and maybe your present job isn't a summer day at the beach that's what I mean when I say rain. The question here is, do you also know how to dance in the rain? So we had the uh, seven fat cows, the seven fat years. It was great times. And then all of a sudden, something changed on us. And now the question is, those who knew how to dance in the good sunshine, did you also know how to dance in the rain? So we're going to deal with this issue. I just want to give you a heads up. This isn't going to be one of the lovey-dovey, rah-rah, cheerleading, it's all great and rosy type of lecture. If we're going to talk about dancing in the rain, we're going to talk about rainy days. We're not going to talk about some, you know, magic dust that's going to make it all go away, stick your head in some mist and it's all gone. We're going to talk about the situation as Chabad really handles it. So we're going to acknowledge there is rainy days. Rainy days are difficult and challenging. And then we're going to talk about the art, the Hasidic art of knowing how to dance in the rain. Where does that come from? Does it come from oblivion? Does it come from denial? Does it come from trust? Does it come from a faith that's abstract? So we really need to discuss this issue in, in its entirety. So I'm going to start with a story, a story that's very, very unusual for any of you that have read any of the Rebbe's writings or letters. Normally, the Rebbe is the encouraging, soothing father figure. People wrote to the Rebbe, blessed memory, and you'll always hear a good twist on a situation which you thought was only negative. That is traditionally how we've always seen the Rebbe operate. I cannot tell you that I have absolutely verified the story, but the story is a very powerful story. So this person comes over to the Rebbe, or it was a letter, I'm not sure which one it was, and he's asking of the Rebbe, he's quetching, you know, Jewish favorite pastime, he's quetching. What's he quetching about? Times are difficult. What do we do in difficult times? The Rebbe's answer, the way I heard it, did not see it in writing, definitely did not see the Rebbe's handwriting. I don't know if it was oral, I don't know if it was written, but these are the words that I heard the Rebbe answered. When did you get a contract from God that it wasn't going to be difficult, it was only going to be easy? This is a very unusual answer from the Rebbe, but it triggered my mind off. I will tell you in Hasidic circles, whoever got such an answer obviously is someone who the Rebbe trusted could handle such an answer. So at times, when we hear such a story, we actually, as Hasidim of the Rebbe, envy someone who the Rebbe felt 
could get such a direct, straight answer. So what we're hearing from the Rebbe is, it's not a promise. It's not a promise life's going to be easy. No one was born with a written contract. God saying, listen, you're going to do a job for me and don't worry. You'll never have doubts. You'll never have questions. You'll never have struggles. There's no uphill, uphill battle. Just learn how to surf, enjoy the waves, and it's over. That's not anyone. Anyone, no one got that contract from God. So all of a sudden, we're talking about rainy days. We're talking about that the Rebbe is telling this person, yeah, it could get difficult. And yet, the job is the job. And the job needs to be done. Parenthetically speaking, the Rebbe is not saying that it's difficult beyond your means. That's an outright statement in the Talmud. Talmud says, the load is in comparison to the strength of the, ca of the camel's back, the donkey's back. So it's camel there in that statement. So obviously, difficult or not difficult is not equivalent to impossible. Yeah, speak to your average kid who uses the word impossible for synonymous with the word difficult. That's not what life really is. So we're not talking about the impossible, but we are embracing difficult. And we are hearing now, if this story is true, and I'm going to assume for this lecture that the story was true, we are hearing that the Rebbe is acknowledging that it's okay if it's difficult. That's not a question on God. So there are rainy days, and there are difficult moments. The real challenge over here is, A, can we handle difficult days? Well, that we already know from the Talmud. If God gave you a difficult day, long before He gave you the difficult day, He set you up with the strength you need. Refer to the upcoming holiday. Before Haman rose to power, Queen Esther was queen. So God already sets up things right. But now the question is not whether you could or can't do it. I didn't come here to, to study, explore, or convince anyone here that there is no challenge that God has placed on your table that you cannot handle. That's not what this is about. We're going to stage B. I'm assuming, not a very healthy thing to do, but I'm assuming that everyone in this room has already come to terms that anything placed on my plate by God, I can handle. Now the question is, do we have to do it with tears? Or can we dance in the rain? Okay? So, with that being said, I want to share with you that this lecture is built primarily on three Hasidic sources. One is chapter 26 in Tanya. For those of you who do the daily run of Tanya, you know that today we started chapter 26. What I'm going to quote to you is tomorrow's study. If you follow the calendar for a non-leap year, this is what we're talking about. Number one. Number two, a statement in the calendar that the Rebbe wrote in 1943. His father-in-law commissioned him to write a calendar called Hayom Yom. Every day is a day. Every day carries a certain sta statement with it. We're going to refer to a statement, a teaching of the 27th of Tevet. And then, in closing, we're going to discuss a sikha from the Rebbe built on a slogan, if you can say, from his great-grandfather, who was his namesake. The Tzemach Tzedek, also with the name of Nachem Mendel, whose wife happens to be also Chayamushka. And what happens here is that he had a famous slogan, and I, I, I'm careful when I use the word slogan. Rebbe's don't create slogans, that's what PR people do. But I'm going to use that word saying, slogan, think good and it will be good. You go over to any Chabadnik, you tell him those words in Yiddish, Trach gut gut, he'll smile. He knows exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, I was actually, I saw, you know these bands they have? They said, so they actually have a band now, the Think Good, It Will Be Good band. 
So these three teachings are, as I see them, they're actually steps leading one into the other. So we're going to talk about first Tanya. The chapter in Tanya is a difficult chapter in Tanya. The Alter Rebbe begins, that's today's study, the Alter Rebbe begins that in war, whenever you have a combat between two people, even if Mr. A is far stronger than Mr. B, but if Mr. A is going through a depression and Mr. B is up and alive, Mr. B will bring down Mr. A. Even though it is clear facts that Mr. A is far stronger than Mr. B. Because depression is from the element of earth, element of earth is always sinking downwards. The element of passion and life is fire, and that's always going upwards. So, show me a giant who's depressed, show me a midget who's full of life, and I will tell you now who's going to make it to the top of the mountain and who won't. So the Alter Rebbe, today's Tanya, is discussing that issue. Now, once the Alter Rebbe approaches the issue of joy, the Alter Rebbe has to hold it up against the shadow. It's all fun and fun and pleasurable to be happy when things are going good. You get a call from your broker who's just telling you you made it on, just add on another zero to your bank account. That's great. But when things are not so ay 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 as they say, then the Alter Rebbe wants to talk about this. I will let you know that the Alter Rebbe spends 19 lines on physical struggles and then spends the next rest of the chapter and following chapter about spiritual struggles. The Alter Rebbe is writing a book where he's expecting us to be more depressed over our spiritual state of being than over our physical state of being. But yet, nevertheless, he deals with the physical state of being first. And he, and he in one sentence, wraps it all up. <coughs> Financial, health, wife, children, basically you got the whole caboodle right there. The Alter Rebbe is talking about over there a very interesting thing. And for this, we're going to need to step out of our box for a moment, okay? The Alter Rebbe says as follows. The primary concern of life must be a relationship with God. That is the primary concern of life. Now, whether it's a rosy relationship or it's a bumpy relationship, Sherry, if it's a bumpy relationship, that's an issue. But you need to be in the relationship. In my marriage, marriage lectures, which some of you have been by, I will tell you, show me a house where there's Dr. Scholl's shoes being thrown and frying pans flying all over the house, I tell you there's hope. Show me a house where there is nothing left. There's no more fighting. He comes, the table's set or not set, she's already sleeping, he leaves, doesn't say goodbye to her. We're dealing with issues. So I am not that concerned. It's the same, by the way, in the world of Chabad. Bring me someone who's going to argue with everything I say. We have a great relationship. Bring me someone who just doesn't care. God, no problem. No God, no problem. It's, it's nothing. Israel's our land. Yeah, no. Find me someone who's a left-wing, passionate, give back half of Israel. Oh, well, we have a conversation here. So the major issue on the table right now is not about whether it's a good relationship, sweet relationship, pleasant relationship. The fundamental concept over here is that the primary focus 
of your life should be to be within a relationship with God. Whether it be the cherries in the bowl, or to quote our dear friend, if life's, full of, if life's a bowl of cherries, why am I in the pits? As long as you're in the bowl. So let's talk about a very interesting teaching I once heard. Not didn't see it documented, but an interesting hand-me-down from teachers to students. The snake, the serpent, right? The symbol of sin. Convinces Eve to eat from the tree, and Eve, like a good wife, is not going down alone, so she brings home some fruit for Adam, and what happens now? God's bringing everyone to the table. What was the curse for the serpent? What was the serpent's curse? One of the serpent's curse is that his food will be like the sand of the earth. This saying goes on to question, what kind of curse is that? If you're talking about sand, the one good thing about sand is that it's everywhere. So that means wherever he or she will be, the snake, well actually by the way I looked this up because I had a whole issue with the, my dog, she is so beautiful, he, by the way in correct English the word is it, animals do not go by he or she. So whatever, wherever it may be, it's got food. So what kind of curse is that? Humans can get stuck in Timbuktu without food. We got a problem. There's no rain. There's a problem. There's no produce. There's a freezing front. Oranges are going up. We got problems. The snake doesn't have a problem. Freezing, not freezing. Rain, not rain. Sands all over the place. He said like this. He said that's the curse of the serpent. Because being that the serpent has no need it doesn't have a tangible relationship with God. Very interesting teaching. When God set up the serpent, you know what? Here, take everything. Not a problem. Whatever you need. Don't call me. Lose my number. That's a problem. That is why Israel, different than Egypt in the biblical times, did not have agriculture from a Nile River. God let us know that we are going to have a relationship with Him because we need rain. Look at the difference between the setup. Note that the Baal Shem Tov, founder of all Hasidus, he actually had a custom that every single night he made sure there was no rubles left in his house. What's about tomorrow? Tomorrow, God will work and God will provide. By the way, I'm not saying that this is for you and me to do. For you and me to do that would be a sin. We're on a different level of relationship with God. God tells us to put away. But for a man on that caliber, he had a daily relationship with God. My needs, you provide. Your mission, I serve. That is the curse of the serpent. It will not need to turn to God no more. And thus, its relationship now becomes pretty much gone. I'm giving this as an introduction to understanding what Alter Rebbe says in chapter 26, second half. Let me give you another story. You guys heard from me. I, uh, I was called into the girls' high school. I used to do over there a class, and they're asking me to come back now, and I'm probably going to do it. It's always that way. The teacher receives more from the student than the student receives from the teacher. And there was a very beautiful communication. 
So my job over there was to run a taboo-free environment for the girls, so the girls can ask their questions that if they ask their teacher or their parent, it becomes a problem. And it was interesting, because the first time they asked me to run that class, the principal and the teacher were sitting there. And I said, uh, okay, students, work it out with your principal and teacher. Are they supposed to be here or not? Mm -hmm. A year later, I bumped into the teacher and I didn't remember her. And she says, oh, you don't remember me? I said, no. I said, you're the one that kicked me out of my classroom. I said, oh, okay. But it was a really, it was a taboo-free environment. And we really had interesting conversations. My primary focus there, besides the boy-girl situation, my primary focus there was to create a communication between daughter and mother. Today's generation, that just doesn't exist. I mean, and that was my outright question to the girls. So you have right next to you another 16-year-old who's hormonally confused as you are, and then you got a mother who's gonna just cut off her right arm for you if you need, but you're gonna ask this 16-year-old hormonal mess for the wisdom of life. But you'd be caught dead before you ask your dinosaur mother who's from a different planet. That was the type of conversation that were going on there. What happened at that stage was something very interesting. So I'm talking to this one girl who's getting into it with me. The whole class is sitting, we're talking about it, and the conversation, the detail's not important, but just to get the picture straight, we're talking about Chabad girls. Chabad girls have iPods, and the iPod music, there's limits to what they're supposed to be listening to and not, and obviously, I don't live in a different world, I know exactly what really lies in their iPod, and that's the conversation we're talking about as an example. They picked that as an example, and we spoke about it. So I told them, please do for your mother what she has not successfully been able to do for you. And they said, what is that? I said, tell your mother that you're taking her out to Starbucks. You're going to sit with a cup of tea, and you want to talk to her. And there was like a humming and dumbing, okay, what, when? I said, yeah, and it's time for you to tell your mother who you really are. Let her know who you are. And there started the whole conversation. And I said, yeah, your mother's going to fall off her chair seat, you know, the Jewish mother. My daughter is, you know, still straight out of the fresh crate with the wrapping paper. What does my daughter know? And they're going to fall off their seat. But then when they see that you're not giving up, you want this to be a communication, they will recompose themselves and they'll have a conversation. That was what I suggested to this girl, all the class. She brings up the iPad as a suggestion and says, ah, what am I supposed to tell my mother what I listen to? I said, yeah. You may want to ask your mother if she listened to Abba back in her day. You don't know. Your mother's as human as you are. Conversation goes on, and she says, well, duh, my mother's going to take away the iPod. I said, okay, please understand. I did not ask you to take your mother out for a negotiating business deal. I asked you to have a conversation with her. It's not about getting a yes. It's about the communication. She responds back, yeah, but what do I need that for? I said, okay, I'm going to give you two scenarios and tell me which one you choose. You have a scenario of an hour conversation with your mother, knowing what your mother worries about, knowing what your mother sees in you, knowing why your mother thinks you shouldn't be listening to this music. But at the end of the day, she has executive power. She's going to say no. Versus you have a 30-second conversation which you half lied to your mother, and she says, yeah, okay, all right, just leave me alone, okay? Do me a favor, just go. Which one do you choose? The specific girl that was talking chose the latter, which was for me a beautiful opportunity. The entire rest of the class did the... Why am I telling you this? 
because it was beautiful to see that a group of nine, ninth and 10th graders really understood that I would rather be able to have a moment with my mother where I feel that she understands me and that I understand her. Where I feel that she cares for me, I really feel loved, even though it's going to come to a point where I'm going to have to give up something that I've been doing because now my mother knows. One girl in the class couldn't get it. The rest of the entire ninth and 10th graders got it. Now my question to you. Can we get what Dr. Rebbe is telling us in chapter 26? Can we understand that when the verse says, only those who he loves, does he rebuke? There's a reason why if my kid acts chutzpahdik, I'm going to come crashing down on him. Someone else's kid acts chutzpahdik, I'll just do the shrug and turn around. Why? Obviously because, besides getting sued today, another factor just would be the main factor. It's not my kid. Yeah, it's a Shanda. Yeah, I wish it wouldn't be happening. And hello, where's this mother? Did she ever take any parenting courses? I, that'll go through my mind. But if my kid did something, I'm not going to shrug. We're going to lock horns. We're going to lock horns because I love him enough to do that. I love her enough to do that. So when we talk about rainy days, does rainy days mean that God doesn't love me? <clears throat> How often do we realize that we have a more tangible and intense relationship with God in rainy days? Let's talk a little bit Kabbalah here. In the world of Kabbalah, there's two dimensions of what we call the world. The world is the reflection of Malchut, sovereignty, kingship, and kingship in Kabbalah is called two different ways. Ocean or land. Eretz, Yabasha. I'm sorry, Mayim or Yabasha. Yam, Yabasha, we'll get this straight. <laughs> Yam and Yabasha. They in Kabbalah are two different experiences of reality. Why was Moses called Moses? Where does the word Moses come from? What did Moses... The daughter of Paro called her, Batya called him Moses. Why? The verse says, because I drew him forth. In Kabbalah, that's a huge statement. That's why Moses' level of consciousness with God was on a different quantitative and qualitative relationship than we can even fathom of. Because he is an ocean creature. Ocean creatures live within their water. They live within their source. They're one with their source. They're conscious of their source. The rest of us are land creatures. We don't live within the earth. We live on top of the earth. And even though the rule is from the verse, afar, everything came from earth, including the sun and all celestial beings, but nevertheless, physical celestial beings, but nevertheless, we aren't within the earth. Land creatures can entertain atheism. Sea creatures cannot. Okay? Now, in this dimension, we have what we call the hidden worlds, which is the ocean, and we have the revealed worlds, which is the land. You and I live within revealed worlds. We live within revealed goodness. We live within a revealed relationship. 
we see ourselves as we see ourselves, and yet we humbly acknowledge that we need God. We are the creation of God. But we are who we are. The ocean creatures, the ocean identity is completely different. So if I'm going to say this a little differently, the land creatures are finite beings created by God to be finite, nurturing off a finite ray of the infinite God. We cannot relate to infinite revelation. That would cause an entire meltdown. Now that we understand that, in the revealed worlds, there are the ten spherot, the first of the seven emotions are, is kindness. So it is what we call revealed kindness. Then there's also the ten spherot of the hidden world, which means over there we have also kindness, but it's called hidden kindness. The difference between the two is that revealed kindness is finite because anything of revelation defines itself by a revealed form. A form has a beginning and an end. Therefore, it's finite. When we talk about hidden kindness, we're talking about infinite kindness. One that does not have to fit itself into what we would call defined goodness. I want to just throw something at you so that you can put this in, in perspective. There is one form of parenting which is regular love. You all have heard of, God forbid, when you're in a level with, a, with an addiction, you need what we call tough love. Everything a parent does in tough love can easily be interpreted as they just don't care. They're throwing me out on the street. They just don't care. I'm going to end up killed under some bridge with needles. They just don't care. So you understand that tough love is, especially in the addict's mind, quickly defined as the opposite of love. Why? Because any specialist and parent that went through this will tell you that it takes a lot more love to perform tough love than it is to perform revealed love. Tough love means that you're going to have to reach into your infinite love for this person to be able to do something that's going to rip you apart and is going to put your child in risk. There has to be the moment of rock bottom and not everyone gets to live to that. That's the facts of life. So the parents aren't sleeping at home just thinking, okay, this is just a nightmare. It's going to wake up. He's going to come back home. The professional told me I'm going to kick him out. He's going to realize. No. He may not live to realize. That's a reality. That's an unfortunate reality. So imagine what kind of infinite love the parent needs to muster up within them to be able to do this. And yet, for the average person sitting on the side looking at this, is going to think, what is wrong with this parent? She just doesn't care. So you understand now when we talk about hidden love versus revealed love. You understand that when you're living in a patch of roses, that's a revealed love from God. That's a good thing. That's what we want to be all day long. 
But please also understand that there is another side of this picture. There is another side of this picture that when you're not in a bed of roses, understand that what you may be experiencing is a far deeper and infinite love of God who's going to be that parent who's going to break his own heart to make sure that you get to where you get to. So now we're talking about a different dimension. So if it's all about me, if it's all about what I want, if it's all about that I want to live in happiness and pleasure and yada, 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 so then leave me alone with the hidden love. Just don't go there. There'll be no hidden love, no nothing. You just send me the check and we'll be just fine, God. But if it's not about that, it's about the reality of a relationship with God, then ask yourself, when push comes to shove, who are you understanding? That one girl that just give me my iPod and I really don't care whether my mother does or doesn't understand me? Or are you the rest of the class? Are you able to say, you know what? If I need to lose my iPod and that's what it's going to take for this relationship to be on a certain level where I really feel understood. There's an eye-to-eye -eye relationship between God and I. Instead of me telling God what I can do, I'm going to listen to God tell me what I can do if I'm just willing to push the buck, if I'm not willing to settle for mediocrity. Then you really clearly begin understanding what dancing in the rain means. You all of a sudden understand that maybe the rain has more dancing material than the sun. It's not easy what I'm saying. I told you, this is not going to be one of these, oh, it was lovey-dovey and you're going to float out of here and it's going to be magical. Not happening. We're talking about dancing in the rain. The rain is real and the dancing's got to be real. So when we talk about this concept of understanding the relationship that goes on here, when we understand it isn't about how good I feel, rather we're talking about is this relationship with God real or not? Is it intense or not? Am I just a pain in God's thigh? Just take it, just go, right, you know what? I just can't stand your nudging no more. What do you want? Take it, goodbye. Or is it about no God? I'm going to nudge because I am who I am. But I want you to know me. I want to know your image of me. I want to know what this is really all about. And if it means that it's, I'm going to have to have some rainy days, okay, just take it easy with me, but we'll go through the rainy days. Okay? It doesn't get easier, guys. So do you want to continue? <laughs> What are you hearing in Tanya? What are you hearing in Tanya right now? What you're hearing in Tanya right now is make up your mind. Is, let's talk to the teenager for a moment. Is your mother your, what do we call it in, in business? The uh, investor? The, the one that brings the money to the table? Is that what it is? 
Is that is that the relationship? Is there no real relationship between the two? Are we going to have to live until Mashiach comes, where the child is always going to demand from the parent unconditional acceptance, without any responsibilities to a golden chain, without any responsibilities to who you come from, what your last name is? I do that with my kids all the time. I could go somewhere, I have no problem telling again, please remember your last name. You have a first name, that's great, but remember your last name, because it's connected to a bunch of other people. So, where is the real relationship between us and God, the teenager and the parent? What are we looking for? Is it just get what you want to get at all costs, even if it's thrown at you in disgust? Or is it no? I really want to have a real relationship with God. Let's go to the next step. I want to just tell you in closing, the Alter Rebbe writes there something amazing. The Alter Rebbe quotes a verse. It's a teaching from our sages. Someone who, I'm not sure it's a verse. Someone who is willing and able to accept suffering with joy. Kabel Yisurim Ba'ahava to receive the Kabel Yisurim suffering Ba'ahava with love. Alava Katuva Mer upon him the verse says, and this is the verse part. Kitzet Hashemesh Bigvurato. The verse says those who hear their shame and do not react, they don't lash out. Upon them it is said, like the sun in its fullest strength. So understand what's going on here. In the closing of this chapter, the Alter Rebbe does introduce to us that when you realize and you live within the realm that the main thing is the relationship with God. So if in the rainy day the relationship is intensified, more tangible, more real, than it was in the wonderful rosy day, then I'm going to accept this with love. Because ultimately speaking, what I want more than anything is a relationship with God. The minute you can do that, realize what you just did. You got rid of the peel and you're looking at the fruit. You're not looking at the difficult behavior that's going on. You're looking at the tough love, the infinite kindness of the hidden world that lies within this rainy day. So when you dance in the rain, just step number one, chapter 26 of Tanya. When you dance in the rain, why are you dancing in the rain? Because you're now feeling that God loves me enough to put me through this. So I am happy that I am so loved, even though I got a slamming no. That very moment that you're dancing in the rain is where you connect to the inner dimension of the reality, which is infinite love. Thus the peel will fall away. The clouds will disperse, the sun will shine. Because understand, tough love isn't an ends, it's a means. And when you get to the ends that that means is bringing you to, 
then there's no need for tough love. You can have the intensity of that love in a revealed, beautiful fashion. Okay? We're on the same page so far? Let's go further. Hayom Yom, step number two. I'm going to read it to you because I wrote it down exactly the way it says it. Obviously, over there it's not written in English. The Alter Rebbe said, this is Vayom Yom, the calendar, the saying for the 27th day of the month of Tevet. The Alter Rebbe said, the physical, parentheses, possessions of a Jew is spirituality. God gives us physical in order that we redefine it into spiritual. <clears throat> Sorry. Sometimes when it isn't so, meaning God doesn't give us an abundance of physical, <coughs> excuse me, we should give a poor man's offering and then God gives in abundance. What did you guys just hear? So God gives us physical. It's all part of our relationship. We're the factory. He gives us physical. Excuse me. We redefine it into spiritual. And it's beautiful. As they say, Tov l'ashamayim v'tov l'abriyot. God is happy. We're happy. It's a machaya. But then he goes on. And when sometimes it isn't so, what do we do? We give a poor man's offering. A poor man's offering, by the way, is in the, in the Torah. In the times of the uh, temple, there was the concept of bringing a sacrifice according to your means. That's why you know that in the sacrifices, there was those of the full-blown animals. There were those of the smaller animals, the difference between an ox and a, and a, and a lamb. And then there was birds, and then there was flour. And it would all depend on your financial means. So there is a rich man's offering. He can bring a nice big hefty ox. And then there's a poor man's offering. Either a bird or even flour. You bring, I don't mean flowers. I mean flour that you make challah out of. Okay, F-L-O-U-R. So now all of a sudden we're getting another dimension here. We're getting a dimension of what and why. There is the sometimes when it isn't so. So the sometimes when it isn't so is not about, all right, sorry, we just can't right now. Rather, it's about the bringing a poor man's offering. I was at the international convention, I believe it was two years ago. The man happens to be local in Florida, one of the biggest supporters especially in the Chabad work in Russia, and a lot of new, new initiatives were done by him. If you saw the JLI, or a lot of initiatives was done by this family. And here in Florida, times got rough, and the Chabad connection to him, the primary Chabad connection, called him up and wanted to know, where do we stand? You know, budgeting, we need to know, where do we stand? And he told him like this. He told him to give when we live in abundance, isn't such a big kunz. It isn't such a big trick. To give, when you're not in abundance, now we're talking about a different type of level of meaningful giving. That was his answer. I sat there by the convention. He spoke by the convention. That was an introduction. And I was thinking to myself, wow. So that means that when you're put into a position of a rainy day, 
And then you ask yourself, okay, what are my community responsibilities? What do I need to give? I can't give what I used to give. I just can't. There's an open toysvis that says about this issue. You're not allowed to give charity to the point where now you need charity. What do you do? It's not about the individual. It's about the collective. So if you're going to give and then you need to take. So we need to redefine what the offering is. It's going to be a poor man's offering, not a rich man's offering. But understand that while quantitatively you dropped, qualitatively you just jumped. You follow the difference? So that means that in a rainy day, there is a gift that is presented to you, a potential gift that could be something you've never experienced prior. I, once upon a time, used to give six digits, and now you're giving four digits? That's quantity. Let's look at it this way. The previous Rebbe went through, in 1929, a horrible, horrible experience in Russian prison. It was, he was arrested for his uh, continuous underground work of keeping Judaism alive. They knew exactly what they were dealing with. And uh, he, he ended up from there in a, had a stroke after years later. They, they affected his health and they ended up with, uh, it, was, it, was not, it wasn't a simple situation. Now then he actually wrote a diary. You can actually read it today in English. He wrote it originally not in English, but they translate it. It's called The Prince in Prison. A very amazing book. And the previous Rebbe after that said as follows. Were you to give me a million ruble, I would not go through it again. Were you to give me a million ruble, I will not give away what I went through. Follow the two sides of this coin. So on one hand, give me a million ruble, I'm not going through this again. Sorry God, find someone else, or please don't find anyone else. But were you to give me a million ruble to give up, what I experienced, I'm not doing that either. So, you guys all saw the movie Black and uh, Men in Black, you know that little thing, boom, and you forget everything. So if God's willing to do that with the previous Rebbe, you will have nothing, no remnants, no nothing. We're going to take everything away as if it never happened. And God doesn't have to be as if. God can control time. It really never happened. And I'll give you a million ruble to give away that experience. His answer is no. A different dimension of rainy days. A very different dimension of rainy days. Now let me tell you, the Hebrew word for challenges is nisayon. The Hebrew word for great heights is from the word nas. The verse says, nas al haharim. It was dancing on top of the mountains. The Hebrew word for miracle is Ness. They're all the same word. Because ultimately speaking, a challenge is a ladder of opportunity. It is a moment of strong definition. It is a moment of experiencing a level of commitment in your little poor man's offering which will outweigh all the experiences of all the names you put on all the buildings in the rich man's offering. 
So that Ayom Yom is giving us a very interesting understanding of why this happens and what God wants. There is a place in God's heart where a poor man's offering in a rainy day outsteps in volumes the rich man's offering in a sunny day. Now, every single morning, for those of you who do your morning blessings, you say there, the al tavi'eni l'day nisayon. We clearly, we clearly pray to God, do not give me this opportunity. Just don't do it. I'm begging you, God, don't test me. I'm totally fine where I am. I know you want to crush the olive to see the oil and let me go to greater heights. I'm cool with it. I'm just here. That's okay. That's what we pray to God every single morning. Don't bring me to this type of test. But if God does bring you to this type of test, what do you do? You've heard from me in this room once before. Stop wasting your time asking why, 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 why. And if you don't know why, and if you do know why, yeah, logos therapy makes it easier if there's meaning, all beautiful. You don't need the why. I had that conversation with someone, a Holocaust survivor, just talked to me about the Holocaust, and you don't go there. You know, these people are holy. Don't go there. But the guy was... I just looked and I said, I want to just ask you one question. Just tell me one question. And if I justify, if I tell you why God did this, will it hurt any less? We dropped the conversation. So please understand, the definition of why God does this is not really important to us. When I say the why and the what, what I really mean is the what. If God puts me in this situation, and I ask God, why are you putting me into this situation? The real question that I really want to ask ever is, God, okay, what do you want me to do with this? That is the relationship question that's to be handled. Why? Why is this person in front of me, a nobody and a nothing, driving a fancy schmancy car, and my, uh, my car is a whole Philharmonica on the road. What? So what? Why? My question is, what do you want me to do with this? This Hayom Yom gives us concrete meat to bring to the table. We're now hearing that maybe it's not always about the quantitative gift. Maybe it's about the qualitative gift. Maybe the question over here on the table is that you're crying, God, why would you only allow me to give a poor man's offering? You know that when times were good. I wasn't the guy who told the rabbi, if I make my 14th million, I'll make you a deal. You know that I was there. You know that I was giving. I used to give a rich man's offering. Why would you do this to me? You're not only hurting me, you're hurting the community. Now we're hearing an answer. Mind you, the question is better than the answer, but there's an answer. The answer is that God isn't always so impressed with the numbers. 
God wants to see sometimes a poor man's offering. God gives you the Nisayon so you can nuss and see Ness. That's what we're talking about here. And yet, here too, what is the previous, what is the Rebbe, by the way, the, whenever the Rebbe writes in the Hayom Yom, the Rebbe's level of total, total humility to his father-in-law was beyond, beyond anything. The Rebbe writes the calendar with the word I. If you ever read that calendar, never make the mistake that the previous, the Rebbe is talking about himself. He writes the calendar as if his father-in-law wrote it. So when you see in that calendar, my father, you don't mean the Rebbe's father, Ablevi Yitzchak, you mean actually the previous Rebbe's father, which was the fifth Bavach Rebbe. So what the previous Rebbe in Hayom Yom, the Rebbe quoting him, is telling us that dancing in the rain is based upon the nosness experience that you have when you bring a poor man's offering. And here too, I read you the closing. What was the closing of that Yom Yom? Once again, we should give God a poor man's offering, and then God gives in abundance. So all of a sudden, the rainy day is part of our journey. And in the Hayom Yom, the rainy day is referred to as sometimes when it isn't so. And now we understand that there's something in there that you and I need to actualize. It's an opportunity. You used to give big. Now when it hurts, you're giving small. Imagine what happens now as you live through the challenge. Imagine now how you experience giving big. It's a total different relationship. I do want to talk to you about something called giving of yourself or giving yourself. Huge issue in Kabbalah. In the face-to-face -face relationship, you don't give of yourself, you give yourself. In the back-to-back -back relationship, you don't give yourself, you give of yourself. Classic example, which you may have heard from me before. So, it's your birthday. You're still young enough to be proud of it. It's your birthday. You kid. If you're bringing up your kid with responsibilities so your kid doesn't have an open credit card called allowance, there's actually a budget. So the kid doesn't really have the luxury to just go and swipe a card and say, yeah, give my mom that, 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 that. So your kid puts together his little pennies and then goes to a store. What do you buy, mom? Perfume. Walks in with his dollar seventy-five. I mean, let's, I mean, obviously that's a joke today, but let's just, for example, entertain the thought. Walks in with his dollar seventy-five or whatever it is, fifteen dollars, and says, ah, "You gotta help me. Which is my mom perfume? My mom." He looks at the fifteen dollars. He looks at the, uh, you know, that's really eighteen dollars. But you work so hard here. Just take it. Here, give it to your mom. Gift wrap it. Now, mom is, Japity Jap. Mom will not be wearing eighteen dollar perfume. What does mom do with that perfume? She will put it on her dresser. Why? Because that isn't the $18 perfume. 
that is her daughter. Months saving, putting it together, sneaking out behind her, getting the gift, sneaking it into the house. So in that face-to-face -face relationship, it wasn't that the daughter gave of her allowance. She gave herself. Let's talk about the back-to-back -back relationship. So, you're in a deal, you're buying a house, you made the horrible mistake of not using Sherry Heller, and what happens? You didn't realize that they snuck in a clause and now there's another $10,000 happening. What happens? You have no choice. You signed the contract. You're going to write out a $10,000 check. How do you give that $10,000 check? So the person across the table is playing Mr. Macho, beautiful, doing business with you. I hope it's the first of many. What do you tell the guy? Take your check, lose my number. We will never be doing business again. $10,000, $18. What's the difference between the two? One gave of themselves. They worked hard to make $10,000. But they are out of the relationship. His giving the $10,000 wasn't even because of the person. It's because of his signature. He needs to honor his signature. So you really have nothing what to do with this. It's about me. There's nothing going on between you and me. Other than you robbed me of my hard-earned dollars. $18 perfume. $18 has nothing what to do with it. So there's giving of yourself and there's giving yourself. Understand that from the normal human psychology, rainy days are where you give yourself. Sunny days are where you most probably, because humans are a lazy being, we don't put in more effort than we have to, we don't ride against friction, you probably give more on a sunny day. But what you did give was of yourself. On a rainy day, you give yourself. That's the beauty of a poor man's offering. That's the beauty of Nisayon Nas Nes. Rainy day challenge. Reaching deeper into greater heights of your commitment. Experiencing miracles. Now before we translate the miracle into being that the economy is going to turn around, let me tell you the real miracle. That experience, mother and daughter, by that birthday perfume. So Hayom Yom takes it a step deeper. Hayom Yom talks about there is a meaning to the poor man's offering that if you're only in your entire journey of life rich, you will never have. So there is a purpose for a poor man's offering. Don't not look at the scenery of that part of your journey. Don't be too embarrassed because everyone knew me the Hatsitatsi and I used to shop and go and come and sit and this lion and that lion. Who am I today? Don't let that get to you. There's something awesome in that leg of the journey. May it be short, may it be quick. But if it's there, don't hide your face in shame. Rise up to an experience that you probably have never had prior and with the help of the good Lord will never have future. The poor man's offering. 
And when you dance in that rain, what happens? You heard the last words of the Hayom Yom. Then God gives in abundance. Step two of dancing in the rain. Okay? Step three. We're running out of time. I should do it quick. Okay. Look at the Sikhs. Think good and it will be, it shall be good. Yeah, we live in a generation where everything's a catchy phrase and, and that's all wonderful and then people buy things because of catchy phrases that won't be working in Lubavitch. In Chabad Lubavitch, there's no catchy phrases. You need to mean what you say, you need to say what you mean. So I want to really be quick because I did get the, the watch look from the boss. But this is the most important climax of the entire lecture today. Please understand that the first two steps that we were talking about, we're talking about chapter 26 in Tanya, we're talking about the 27th day of Tevet in, in the Yom Yom. We're talking about dancing in the rain because of the deep intensity and closeness of tough love. And then we're talking about doing something with it because of the deep gift of opportunity in poor man's offering. Both of them, the dancing is reactive to the situation. Listen, it's raining, so what do you want to do? Kvetch, cry? How about taking off our shoes, going out in the rain, dancing? Let's, let's be happy. We're either going to accept it, the first dance, or we're going to utilize it, the second dance. But they're both reactive to the situation. What the Rebbe does in this concept is just mind-boggling. I want to read it to you inside. There is the dance in the rain in which we embrace the rain. Then there is the dancing in the rain in which rain does not exist. Those are not the words of the Rebbe. Those are my 3 a.m. words. But I want to reread it again. There is the dance in the rain in which we embrace the rain. Guys, it's raining. So what do you want to do now? Then there is the dancing in the rain in which the rain does not exist. Now let me be clear. Maimonides clearly states that when trouble hits you, he says very harsh words if you write it off as coincidence. Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. No. In a Jew's life, there must be, in everything, communication. If you can't hear God talking to you, you need to see an ear doctor. Because anything that happens to you is a communication. So the Rambam clearly says, things are getting rough, you may want to sit down and start looking over your actions. Maybe you're not doing what you should. Maybe you're doing what you shouldn't. Maybe there are some sins going on here. So that is true. That is Maimonides. Done. End the story. But now I'm going to take you to a place in Hasidus which is just overwhelmingly amazing. I want to tell you what the Rebbe says there. The Rebbe says as follows. There is a deep level of trust in God which says that regardless of my deserving or undeserving behaviors, God is unconditionally good and does good. Therefore, even if I sin and I am undeserving of sunshine, there should be a black cloud forming on top of my head. Nevertheless, because God is good and God does good, unconditional and non-subjective to my behavior, Therefore, I trust it will not rain on my head. 
this is something which is very, very difficult. It's difficult, as we're going to see in two minutes, but I want to first get a stage deeper. Ready for this? Baal Tov says a teaching. That when you trust that God is doing good, not as reflective to your behavior, but because God is unconditionally, infinitely good, and He does good to the deserving and the undeserving. Listen to this. This, so to speak, quote-unquote from Chassidus, forces God that He cannot punish you. That trust in God, that you are going to do good, not because I deserve or don't deserve it, you are going to do good because you are infinitely good. You are objectively good. And you do good. That trust in God forces God to be objectively good and not subjective to what you deserve. Ready for step two? Says the Baal Shem, it's actually step three. Says the Baal Shem Tov, therefore God cannot punish you. So when God wants to punish someone, listen to these words, it is mind-boggling. When God wants to punish someone, first He takes away the power of trust. Because if you trust in His infinite, unconditional, objective goodness, He can't punish you. So He needs to first take away your trust. Once He takes away the trust, then He can punish you. This is powerful stuff. I want to go one more step. Says the Rebbe, quoting from Tanya concerning Teshuva, if you guys learn the Talmud in Sanhedrin, it says clearly that there are certain cases where God will not give you the opportunity to do Teshuva. If you sin and force other people to sin, if you sin and say, don't worry, I'll do Teshuva before Yom Kippur comes, God does not give you the opportunity to do Teshuva. The Alter Rebbe says there, but we know a verdict that nothing stands in the way of Teshuva. So how does that fit with this Gemara? Yeah, I got an economy in the Gemara. The Alter Rebbe answers. There is the lower level of Teshuva, which is normal, and it is, you can reach it. That God took away from you. Now listen to the words. If you push until you push in, you get in, then you have the verdict. Nothing stands in the way of Teshuva. What does that mean? What that means is that if you're willing to push, you know that God said, sorry, you will not be doing Teshuva. You abuse the Teshuva system. And then you realize, are you kidding me? I, eternally separated from God, not happening. So now you know that lower Teshuva, normalcy, is not available to you. So you rip deep within the essence of your heart where you have the abnormal, transrational folly of teshuva, supernal teshuva, and you break through, you will get there. By the way, if you question on a physical level if this works, please understand that it wasn't so many years ago that medically speaking, addicts were doomed. There was no hope. They ended up in an asylum, and then it was just help them easily drift away. You talk about addiction recovery, I'm talking to you about this now. 
normality says, sorry, you just can't. And yet, God has gifted us with a 12-step program, one of the many ways, which allows for a continuous recovering addict. True, never a fully recovered addict, a continuous recovering addict. That's called telling God, I heard you say no, but I'm not taking no for an answer. Now that's teshuva. Let's move from here into trust. Says the Rebbe, the same thing goes with trust. You feel your trust slipping away. Why would you lose trust in God? Because God's taking it away from you. Why is God taking it away from you? Because God wants to punish you. What do you do? You dig deeper into yourself to where trust exists on a higher level and you adamantly dance in the rain. You dance in the rain not because you're accepting the rain. You dance in the rain not because you want to give a poor man's offering through this opportunity. You dance in the rain because you're looking at God and saying, you will not rain upon me. You will not rain upon my parade. Oh really, why not? You deserve it. Because I trust that your infinite, unconditional, objective goodness is not subjective to me botching up. In closing, let me tell you what the problem with this Hasidic magical secret of dancing in the rain is. The problem is the questions come up. Well, so you tell me there's no justice, right? There's no justice. God can't punish me. Because even when he takes away trust, I'm going to go deeper into a deeper trust. So there's no right and wrong. There's no reward and punishment. Questions start coming up to your head. Let me tell you what you do when those questions come to your head. If you want to experience the ultimate Hasidic ma magic of dancing in the rain. You yell out, stop, it's starting to rain. And just dance. The problem with this trust is that you want to arrogantly absorb it on a rational level. Expect it to rain. What you need to do is to just repeat and repeat and repeat. Think good and it will be good. Well, I can't think good. God's taking that away from me. No. Think good and it will be good. Dance in the rain not because you accept the relationship of the rain. Dance in the rain not because you now have an opportunity to give a poor man's offering. Dance in the rain because you are absolutely certain that God will not rain on your parade. I walked into the hospital in Florida. A Chabadnik. doctor was predicting heavy downpours of rain, shall we say. Quadriplegic, not a simple situation. Walked into the, he's a good friend of mine, walked into the hospital room and his wife was sitting there with a photostat copy of the Rebbe Sicha. Think good and it will be good. She started asking me questions. Her face was glowing. It's the glow of trust that you cannot fake. The man's home. The man's up and he's not up and about, he's in a wheelchair. But he's alive. Very functional. High functional in the community. So the think good and it will be good is problematic if you want to approach it rationally. If you want to have the scientific mode, well guess what? 
when we botched up in our behavior, we botched up to the right to only have rational scientific mode because that's going to lead to a rainy day. But if you cannot have to go there rationally, if you can just absorb this concept that there is the dance in the rain that's not accepting the rain, not utilizing the rain, it is telling you that it will not rain. That is a proactive dancing in the rain, not a reactive dancing in the rain. Now we're talking about the ultimate magic of the Hasidic dancing in the rain. So, you heard me talk to you about chapter 26 in Tanya. That is the first level. It's, you know, let me just read you my closing. It's three lines. In closing, rainy days are a time to dance. Rainy days are part of your journey. It is where we define ourselves. It is where we reach deeper into ourselves. And it is where we learn to really trust and get to earn more meaningful and unconditional sunshine and abundance. People, may this just be an intellectual lecture. May we not need to deal with it on a tangible level. Amen. But let's, let's do what we got to do. Let's dance Amen. in the rain because it's not going to rain and let's move on in life. Thank you guys. Bye -bye.